Once again, welcome you to Cross Life Church, and I want you to take your Bibles this morning where you are right now, and I want you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 29. Now, uh, we live in definitely anxious times and stressful times right now. We, we really wonder what in the world God is doing, but we never know what is going on in the mind of God. For example, I heard a story this past week about one particular pastor's journey to his church. And right now he pastors a church running thousands of people in a big city. And he was sharing with his congregation how he, he came to be starting that church in that city. He was going to seminary, and one of his professors, who he took two courses from, he said, you know, he looked at me and said, I believe that you're of this denomination. That's what you ought to go for. And he said, I did. And, and they were very much into church planting. And so I moved to this city. I planted a church. And because of that, this church is here today. Several locations, thousands of people. But that's not the whole story. The professor that he, he took those two classes from was only a, in that seminary for about a year or so. And he came from England. And he was having trouble getting his visa. And the, so much so that the president of the uh, institution was at a prayer meeting and he was praying a request. He was asking a request that they would uh, find a way to get this professor over there, just somebody he really, really wanted in his school. And so one of the young men in the prayer meeting, and there's only a few there, maybe a half a dozen, said, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but my, my dad is Gerald Ford, who was the president of the United States at the time. He said, if you want me to, I could ask him to do something, to get through the red tape, to get this man over here. That happened. He got over just in time to teach this young man way back in the 70s in his course. And so he could be part of that denomination that was about planting churches and planting it. And you say, well, that's a fascinating story. But that's not the whole story. If you think back with me for just a moment in history, how did Gerald Ford become president? Well, he became president because Richard Nixon had to resign as president because of Watergate. Now, if you can remember Watergate just a little bit, that's when a uh, bunch of people broke in or some people broke into the Democratic um, Center and uh, the Democratic Party Center and bugged the offices right before the election. And they would have never known it. In fact, we don't know if that goes on all the time anyway, but they would have never known it. But somebody, one of the perpetrators, left a door cracked for two inches, forgot to close the door. Either that or he just didn't pull it tight enough. A security guard noticed it, and because of that, they checked the room over for bugs, and they found all these microphones. If it were not for that, then Richard Nixon would have never resigned. President Ford would have never become president. His son would not have been in the prayer meeting. And then, probably the professor would have never come from England to teach this young man in his seminary classroom, then he wouldn't have been part of that denomination and planted that church and gone to that big city and had thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ under his ministry, all because a door was left open just two inches. You see, we don't know what the rippling effect of anything that's going on even in our day right now with this virus going on, and, and many of us are facing stress outside of that. You've got family stress. You have job stress. And now even more job stress. You have financial stress. And now the virus is just poured on top of it, and you're having to stay at home perhaps, work from home. All kinds of things are going on. But we don't know exactly what's going to happen in all this. 
we know and we must realize in times like these that God is still on his throne. He's still there. And that's what this message is all about this morning. Uh, Because when you think about it, we question this all the time. God, if you're on the throne, and we've already said in this seven reasons why you should trust God and you can trust God, we've said he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere at once, he's, has, he's filled with wisdom, love, and grace, and he's faithful to do whatever we, uh, he, he has promised to do. If he's all that, then why does he even allow viruses, evil, suffering in the world? Great question. And as we open to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we find a story of David. In fact, this is the end of David's life. David had been king over Israel for many, many years, and now he was about to die. And the country sensed that. He turned things over to Solomon, his son, and he was anointed him as the future king. And now he was facing death soon himself. And he's thinking to himself, what can I do for the nation of Israel in order to really... uh, prepare them for my death and for the future. Because up to this point, Israel had trusted David. They said, you know, David's our mediator between us and God. As long as David is king, hey, we've been all right. But we don't know about Solomon. He's young. He's inexperienced. We don't know about him at all. And we don't know whether he can really take care of us or not. And so David was turning away the attention towards Solomon. He was turning it towards someone where their attention needed to be anyway, and that was God. He says, what we need to do is build a temple. And it was David's dream to build that temple. In chapter 28, he says, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. He goes on to say, and he said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. If he continues strong in keeping my commandments and rule and by my rules, and as he is today, if you follow my, if he follows my commandments, he follows my rulership in his life, my lordship in his life, I'm going to bless him just like I blessed you. But he said, it's going to be Solomon to build the temple. So David had this idea, and I believe it, of course, is given to him by God to raise the money for the temple. And in chapter 29, we find out that if you were to put this in terms of today's money, it's billions, really billions of dollars that he's raising here for uh, building Solomon's temple. And so as he raises the money, they go far and beyond anything they ever thought they could raise. And so David comes with a great word of praise. Here's what he has to say in verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and forever. Yours, O Lord, Lord, is the greatness, listen to this, the power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. And that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. Now, a kingdom needs a king. That's what he's calling him. He said, you're the majesty. You are the king. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, God, not the people, but God, our God, and praise your glorious name. He went into a great uh, song, you might say, of praise to the Lord. And as we look at this, 
we're looking at the sovereignty of God, the rulership of God. What does God have to say about him being on his throne? We need to ask ourselves really basically three questions. What do we need to know? What do we need to see? What do we need to do? First of all, what do we need to know? We need to know what sovereignty really means. It means that God is in control of everything. He rules everything and nothing is outside of his rulership. Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Here we find the attributes of God right here in the, in the passage. He's great. He's power. We've, we've preached on that. The glory, we've preached on that before. I've taught on that. The victory, the majesty of God. The kingdom has to have a king. The king has to have, the kingdom has to have rules. And he's the ruler of everything that we know. That means that God is the ruler over nature. Listen to this verse. In fact, let me just tell you the story. When Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, you remember the story. The storms begin to, to come up and the waves begin to rock the boat there in the Sea of Galilee. And they woke up Jesus and he said, they said to him, said, Lord, don't you, don't you worry that we're perishing? Aren't you concerned? And he got up very calmly, I believe, held up his hand and said, be still. And everything stopped. The storm was over. And they said this, they marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? He's Lord over history. Read about that in Isaiah chapter 14. He's Lord over people. And you say, now, wait a minute. I take issue with that, Pastor, because he's, he's not Lord over many people's lives. And maybe not your life. But he is Lord over many, many things in life. Think about how little we really choose in our life. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the original color of your hair. You didn't choose your, the color of your eyes. You didn't choose your talents. You didn't choose your spiritual gifts. So many things that we just didn't choose. It's sort of like, a, and I know this is maybe a, not a popular story, illustration right now, but if you were to get on a cruise ship and you were on that cruise ship, well, you would have choices. Now, I've been on a cruise or two, and you would have choices. You can go and eat. You can eat a free ice cream, maybe a free cookie, maybe a, a, the dessert line, or you can go swimming or sit beside the pool and read a good book. You can go into your room and watch television. Uh, you can uh, pay an arm and a leg to get on the computer so you can, you can actually do some, some work. All kinds of choices. They even have a workout room on some of these ships. So you have all kinds of choices, but you have no choice on where that ship's going to go once you get on it. The captain determines if he's going to anchor because of a storm. He's going to determine whether you go into port because of a storm. He's going to determine the destination, where it's going, and where you're going to stop. God is like that captain. Yes, we can, we can make choices on the ship, certain choices that we make, but ultimately God makes the decisions. Well, God rules over relationships as well, including our salvation. The Bible tells us in John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father. In fact, let me just read this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He says, no one can get saved, become a Christian anytime they want. Well, they, they can anytime they want, but where does that want come from? That, 
that want to, that conviction of sin comes from God's Holy Spirit being directed by the Father to your life. So while you can get saved anytime you want to, you can't get saved anytime. You have to want to. How do you want to? The Spirit of God moves on your heart. Romans 1 says, we don't know the mystery of it. He just puts the knowledge of God in our heart. It's not that you look and say, oh, there's a watch, therefore there must be a watchmaker. There's, there's a creationist going on somewhere. There's something in this world. You look at all the proofs of God, but ultimately, God just comes to your heart and says, I'm here. I exist. I'm here for you. And so he reveals himself to us. And we have all kinds of choices in life. In fact, God moves on our heart and we choose to follow Christ the way the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. In Joshua, he says, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. We make choices and there's a mystery here because all the choices that we make, we say, well, I'm going to marry this person. Is that my choice? Well, probably so. I'm going to have this many children. And you think at least you're making that choice, but all the choices that we make, never interrupt, never interfere, never mess up the ultimate plans of God. How does he do that? Well, the Bible says we've been chosen in him according to the foreknowledge of God. We've looked at this before in another message where God knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows what's going to happen, and yet we're still free to choose things in our life. It's a mystery under God's ultimate plan. God's still on the throne. God is on the throne of everything in life. God was on the throne when Adam and Eve sinned against God. God was on the throne when all the prophets, including back in the days of David and following and before that, as they were prophesying for repentance, God was on his throne. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cried out, he said, Lord, if this cup of wrath could be taken from me and I don't have to die on the cross, Lord, I pray that it would be done. God was still on his throne. God was on his throne when Jesus Christ hung on a cross and bled and died for us. When he cried out with a loud voice that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear friends, he was still on the throne. When he cried out, it is finished. He was still on the throne. When he raised him up on the third day, God was still on the throne. When Jesus ascended up into heaven and joined the Father at the right hand to ever make intercession and pray for us, God was still on the throne. And he's still on the throne today. He's still there. Revelation, let me just read this passage to you. Uh, on Re in a Revelation study that we're doing on Thursday night online, we're going to be going over this in a few weeks, but let me just read something to you that is going to be going on in heaven. In fact, it was going on in heaven as prophecy back at the end of the first century when John, the apostle, got caught up into heaven. This is what he saw. Then I saw in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. The only one this could be is God himself, a scroll written within on the back, sealed with seven seals, with a loud voice, who, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, was able to open up the scroll or to look into it. And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found. John's weeping here. He's crying, worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Remember David's throne going forever and forever? Jesus is that forever and conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Remember, seven is not the lucky number in the Bible. It's the perfect number. 
And so we find seven horns, seven eyes with seven spirits. That's the perfect Holy Spirit of God sent out into the all, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. He took the scroll of the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is a picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the picture of the root of David. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain on the altar, on the cross for us, taking the scroll, the deed of life from the Father's hand. He's still on his throne today. It says in verse 11, Then I looked, I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is still on the throne no matter what is going on in your life. So what does that mean to us? What do we need to see through all this? As we look back at our passage as well as other verses as well, it means that our problems, our problems have a purpose. The Bible says trust in the Lord, or rather the Bible tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Here they needed money for the temple. There was, there was a problem that came up. No question, there was a problem. They had been in, in a great place. In the future of Israel, they would not be in a great place after David died. In fact, the kingdom would eventually be split, and there would be many evil kings coming along, and the people had a right to be worried about the person who was going to replace this great man. And so they were moved to give a lot of money to build the temple because now the tension needs to fall on God and not on Solomon or not just uh, simply another person. For you and I, when we have problems in our life, they bring about a purpose. I'm not saying that can always be true with an unbeliever. But because of this, God works in our life. Now, you say, well, I don't know why God has to have evil and suffering in the world in the first place. Why do we have all this? Well, because we have free will. And when you have free will to choose between good and evil, sometimes you're going to choose evil, and evil is brought about, and evil brings about suffering. Now, let me please understand what I'm saying. All, all suffering stems from sin, but not necessarily personal sin. In other words, there's sin in the world, therefore there's suffering in the world. Therefore, there are viruses in the world, and there are flus in the world, and there are earthquakes in the world, and other things happen. There's death in the world, for the wages of sin is death. And so these things happen, and sometimes they, they affect our life in a very personal way. But somebody says, well, I think God just ought to take away free, free will. Then we wouldn't have any problems with sin and, and suffering. Now, here's the problem with that. We want everybody else's free will taken away. We don't necessarily want our own free will taken away. God, you know, take away the free will of others so they won't hurt me. Uh, take away the free will of the weather so it won't interfere with my life. Or the viruses, please take them away. Take away the free will of other kingdoms that might hurt the United States. Take away the, the, uh, earth, and the earth, earthly rulers that might hurt us. Take away their free will. My teachers, you know, I, I think I deserve an A. Take away their free will, but not mine. Just don't take my free will away in the right to choose. And you and I both know that any relationship requires us to have choices if we're going to love someone. We can't be coerced into loving. It has to come from the heart. And so what is God trying to do in our life? Well, several reasons, several purposes. 
During this time, he might be trying to get our attention. He might be trying to draw us to himself. I think that all of us can admit that while we live in a world that is affluent in general, more affluent than it's ever been before at least, and it's gaining um, uh, financial freedom nearly in every country. India is much better off today than it was 20 years ago when I was there, much better off. We can see all these things happening, and yet we can also see a great amount of sin in the world and really an abandonment, in, in a sense, of the things of God. We have need for revival. We have need for, to bring back attention upon the Lord. We have need to, for us to go to Him and not necessarily our parents or the government or the job to meet our needs. We need to have a relationship with Him and be drawn to Him and have a, a sense in our world of everybody now is turning their attention to God. We felt like maybe, hey, maybe 9-11 would do that. It didn't. We felt like, okay, maybe the recession that we were in, really almost a depression for several years, maybe that will do it. That, that actually went the opposite way. We turned away from God. There was bitterness about that. Will we turn to God this time? Will God grab hold, grasp people's hearts and, and call us to himself and us respond with a great attention toward him and a great sense of God, I'm yours. And God, I know that you're Lord over the universe and you rule over the universe, but the only thing maybe you don't have in the whole universe is people's hearts. And I want to give you my heart today. It could be out of maturity. Some people are growing in Christ. Maybe even a bigger, just a bigger plan. We don't know what God's doing. We just don't know. We, we don't see the big picture. I remember when um, I was a, a young person. Uh, I guess I was probably in the sixth grade or so, fifth or sixth grade. And I had a friend that lived in our neighborhood named Marvin. And Marvin's dad drove a Tom's potato chip truck. He would go from place to place, store to store, and deliver all this stuff. And I've heard, you know, if you rode with them and helped them out for the day, you get all this free food, free chips and crackers and peanuts and, you know, candy bars, things like that. And so he invited me, he said, hey, you want to go on a run with us? You know, it lasts about 10, 12 hours, and we'd make this big trip all over North Georgia. I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm all over it. So we're in the truck, and this truck, the doors were open. I mean, you could just jump out on the highway going 60 miles an hour, I guess, if you wanted to. I, I didn't choose to do that, but it, you could have. And so we're looking at, down at the road, and uh, my friend tells me, he, he looks at me, we're trying to play little games to preoccupy, our, ourself, preoccupy ourselves, and he says, uh, uh, why don't you count those white stripes, you know, the white stripes that come along, uh, little broken up white stripes in the, in the um, highway, count those and see how far you can go, and we'll, we'll have a contest. I said, sure, and I start counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, it goes down real fast, and I get so far and mess up, and I go again, I finally got about maybe eight or nine in a row. I said, well, you try it. And so instead of looking down here, he looks up the road. He says, one, two, three. You see, when you, he, look, he was looking at the farther picture, the bigger picture of life. And sometimes we just get bogged down. We think, bang, 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 all these problems are hitting me. And now the virus comes along. Coronavirus comes along and it's hitting us all over. And all we can do is look down at the highway and see things go, decision, decision, decision. All these things having to be made by businesses and by people. And we're not looking ahead as God is and saying, look, this is what I'm doing in your life. This is the rippling effect this could have in a positive way in your life. Well, we not only need to see that, but we need to see our path as a destination. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind 
in a man's mind, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God has a plan for us. He has a destination for us. And you and I know that we can head down a lot of different paths in life. It's not just like a highway that's going one way and just, oh, let's just make ourselves along this highway and we'll get closer and closer to God. No, there are a lot of turns on that road. Many, many exits from that road that you can get off and get off in a different direction. Only God can determine the destination. You, you and I can choose. We have a lot of choices. We can choose what to do, but we cannot choose the consequences that are going to be involved and the destination that's going to happen. Well, thirdly, real quickly, our prayers make a difference. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Someone said one time that we ought to work as though everything depends on us and pray as though everything depends on God. Well, that sounds really good. I'm not sure how it sound theologically it is, but it sounds like pretty good advice. You and I can pray knowing that God has an answer out there for us. It says if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, he's going to give us the petitions of what we are requesting. Then his presence breaks through the circumstances of life. One illustration, in fact, Romans, let me just say this, Romans 8.28, I'm not sure it's going to be on your screen, but it says, for we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, all things are not good, but all things work together like a cake mix. You wouldn't want to drink vanilla extract on your own. Many of you don't know what that is because most people haven't baked anything in a long time. We just go to the grocery store, right, and get, pick something up. But all kinds of ingredients go into that cake. And when all the ingredients come into that cake, all things are in life. All things work together for the good. Look at Joseph's life, one of the great examples in the Bible. In Genesis 37 through 50, we read about this great man of God who was the grandson of, um, of, of Abraham. And as he was living his life, he was a favored son by his dad. And the rest of those brothers were jealous. They sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. And he became the second most powerful man in the world. And he came up with a plan that during, they would prepare for a drought. And, and uh, they would take food up. And they put them in storage buildings all over Egypt. And when the drought came, not only were the Egyptians coming to Joseph for food, but the rest of the world was as well. And here were Joseph's brothers showing up to get the food. They didn't recognize him, but we understand that God, that Joseph forgave them. And here's what he said at the end of the story. As for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When Joseph was in that deep well, he didn't know what God was doing. When he was sold, he was was taken in a caravan to Egypt, didn't know what God was doing. When he was placed in jail, he didn't know what God was doing. When he interpreted dreams and then no one came through to help him, even uh, the people that he helped didn't help him, didn't know what God was doing. But finally, 13 years later, it came to fruition, and he became the man that God wanted him to be through all that adversity, 
through all that breaking down of brokenness and the pride that was in him, he became the man God wanted him to be, and he used him more than any other person in that time in history. You don't know what God's doing. You say, yeah, but things are tough. Things are dry. Chuck Swindoll said it best. God is in control of the times and seasons. Some times are hard, and some seasons are dry. Therefore, God is in control of the hard times and the dry seasons. And so how do you respond to this? How do you respond? After all, this is the end of the, me- end of the series of messages, and we've said, look, three things you do when you're really uh, asking God to do something really big. Number one, you ask the question, God, can you? We've addressed that. He can. God, will you? Do you love me enough? Are you gracious enough? Are you faithful enough? We've addressed that. Now, what is your part? So, you know, don't I have a part in all this? Don't I have to stay close to God? What do I do? Well, notice what David did. He, first of all, he bowed in worship. The people began to worship God, but they did it through, through just going through the motions. In fact, that's the history of the nation of Israel many, many times. The reason they went into slavery so many times is because they, they did the rules, but they didn't do it from the heart. They just did it out of a, an obligation of doing it so God would bless them, not because he really loved them, not because they were really worshiping. You know, how would, how would it be if, men, if you came up to uh, your wife before you married her and said, you know, will you marry me? And she says, why do you want to marry me? And you say, well, your parents and your family have quite a bit of influence, and I think they could really help me in my career. Now, how about it? Well, chances are she'd probably say no. Well, what about, you know, I just think you're so beautiful. Well, that's fine, but then she's going to be thinking she's got to stay beautiful the rest of her life. Oh, I, I just think, you know, you, you've, got, you've got such a good trust fund. No, but that's how we come to God. God, you're going to bless me. You know, if, if I do this and I obey these rules, then you're going to, I'm going to win favor with you and you're going to bless me. And that's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. And because of that, the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from them. In fact, there's one passage in Ezekiel that says that one day the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box that, that really where, stood for the presence of God in the nation of Israel, would be taken away forever because of their attitude, not because necessarily all of their actions because of the attitude. Loving God in worship because we love God for who He is. Now, what if your wife-to-be asks you, why do you love me? Why do you want to marry you? Oh, because I love you. Well, why do you love me? Instead of saying, oh, let me count the ways, you just looked at her and said, I love you because I love you. I I just love you. I can't explain it. But I love you because, not, not what I can get out of the relationship, I love you because I love you. That's what God is wanting from our heart. God, I worship you from the heart because I love you just because you're you. I'm not looking for what I can get out of the relationship. I'm looking, rather, Lord, at giving back to you because Jesus has come in to my heart and he's changed my life. And I'm serving God out of the heart, not like Amaziah, a king in the Old Testament, where it said at the end of his life, King Amaziah served the Lord, but he did it with a half a heart. Not that, but rather a loving heart. So we bow and worship. And then 
to be submissive or surrendered to the Lord. They gave out of their money, out of a deep surrender to God. I believe that. But at the same time, sometimes we give, or, or rather, we, we want to worship God and be having all the blessings of God without a surrender. You know, that's, that's what's wrong with modern-day spirituality today. People say, well, I'm spiritual. You've heard that before. A lot of entertainers like to say that. I'm spiritual. I may not be a Christian, but I'm spiritual. Well, what we try to do sometimes is we say, you know, I want to be a good person, and I want the blessings of God on my life, and I want people to look at me in a good way without any kind of surrender. It's like rubbing, rubbing a, a genie lamp, right? It's like rubbing, rubbing the lamp. The genie comes out and says, you know, I don't have to do anything, genie, to change my life. I don't have anything, any surrender in my life to you. I don't have any obligation whatsoever. Just give me, give me, give me. But no, the surrendered heart says, no, I'm, I'm looking to God because I love him. I'm surrendering my life to him. What do we do? That's it. We surrender our heart. We worship by surrendering our heart to him. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that I've quoted in this series of messages, and I will just uh, read it to you as I close. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I can't tell you how often I've read that verse. And I've asked God, I said, God, I want to be that guy. I want to be that man. I want to be that man. I want to strive to be that man. And he revealed to me this week through this passage in First Chronicles, you'll never be that man. You never will be. Because there's only one person who's been blameless, and that's Jesus Christ. And you, you're not him. You see, Solomon was the son of David. And he becomes a type of Christ, you might say, a symbol of Christ in this passage. And he's saying, Solomon's your new mediator by building the temple, by being that bridge. He's your mediator. He's your bridge to God. When Jesus came and died on the cross for us, he became our bridge to God. And once I repented of my sins and once you repented of your sins, the Bible says we received Christ and the righteousness of God was imputed or put in, put in to our heart. And because of that, we became a new person. So when God looks at me, if this hand could represent my life and all this represent the sin of my life, all the things that I've ever done, that's what represents. God does not see me anymore with that sin. He looks at me through the eyes and the blood of Jesus Christ. If this hand could represent Jesus, Jesus took away all those sins because now he sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, we've already won favor with God. We're already in the place of blessing. We're already in the place of that destination that God is taking us to. We're already under, under the, the sovereignty of God. We just need to be submissive to him. I mean, after all, if I'm not on the path of blessing, there's a lot of things that God wants to give to me, and I will never get them. If I give UPS the wrong address and I'm not there, I'm not going to receive the package. If someone told you, I'm going to put a million dollars in a briefcase and leave it at a certain place in the new downtown of Oviedo on such and such a moment to the minute, you would need to be there. 
if you're not there, somebody, you say, well, you know, I, I got, <laughs> you know, I got sidetracked, you know. I, I stopped over at Starbucks, and, you know, I, I decided to get a little latte and a little coffee or something, and, and I just got interrupted, but I got there at five after, by five after, somebody else had already gotten that briefcase, checked it for a bomb. It didn't have a bomb in it. And so the finder's keepers and the one who found it got the million dollars. You see, if you're not there, if you're not where God wants you to be, and I'm not where God wants me to be in his will, following him, loving him, not because I have to, but because it's a rule, because Jesus Christ has come into my heart and changed my life, and I'm just living, living like I'm supposed to live, like I'm called to live. Like I'm created and born again to live. And I'm not living that way, then there's a reason to doubt that I've ever received Christ in the first place. The beauty of this whole passage and the beauty of the sovereignty of God is all about assurance. It's all about God saying, rest assured, I am with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's an assurance, a presence. It's an assurance of, of care, of providential care. And it's assurance of salvation. God says, these things I've written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. The sovereignty, the rulership of God will not allow you to lose it once you have it. Do you have it? Do you know that Jesus lives in your heart? There's people here today that you're having trouble trusting God. Would you say to God, God, I I just want to worship you. And I want to worship you by surrendering my heart to you, new and afresh every day, new areas of my life every day. God, I just trust you. You're looking down the road. I'm just looking at the the lines on the highway right beside me, and they're coming at me so fast. But God, you have a plan in it all, just like you did for that pastor. You've got a plan for me. And if you've never received Christ into your heart, you you can know it. You can know that you're saved today, right where you are in your home, wherever you are. And I want to invite you to receive Christ today. And you can do that by calling on his name. It says, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that today? Would you pray with me today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the message. Thank you, Lord, for the worship today. And thank you, Lord, for the adversities that you do send us in life because they point to you. They call us to your name. They mature us in you. And they're going to bring us out on the other side in a better place because you are sovereign. You're ruling everything by the strong arm of your, and your hand. And God, I pray today for every believer that you would keep us, if in any possible way, from this virus. But also, Lord, that you would help us to help others go through it. Help us to help each other trust you more and we would be surrendered to you. And then, Lord, I pray for those who have never received Christ. I pray they would pray this prayer with me right there in their home, and they would just repeat after me. Would you do that right now? Lord God, thank you for loving me enough to go to the cross and die there for my sins. You were on the throne when Jesus died for me. It was your perfect will that he would pay for my sins. So I ask you, based on the cross, that you would forgive me of everything that I've ever done and come into my heart. I pray that I would sense your presence in my life even now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.